Welcome to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. I was delighted to welcome Dr. Brewer and Dr. Harmon to the podcast. Dr. David Harmon earned his undergraduate degree in biochemistry from Wheaton College and his MD at Texas A&M. He is currently a cardiovascular medicine fellow at Mayo Clinic, where he conducts research on AI in medicine. Dr. La Princess Brewer earned her undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from Howard University, her master's of public health from George Washington University, and her MD from Johns Hopkins University. She completed fellowships in cardiovascular diseases and preventative cardiology at Mayo Clinic, where she is now an associate professor of medicine. Her primary research focus is developing strategies to reduce and ultimately eliminate cardiovascular disease health disparities in racial and ethnic minority populations and in underserved communities through health promotion and community-based participatory research. I'm so excited to talk to you because you've done some really interesting projects that we'll get to, but I want to start with a little bit about both of your backgrounds and how you initially became interested in AI and machine learning. Sure. So I'll go ahead and start. My name is David Harmon. I'm one of the general cardiology fellows here at the Mayo Clinic. And my interest in AI probably began when I was actually very young. And uh, I always loved science, science movies, uh, sci-fi, all of that. So I definitely always thought of AI in this very Hollywood fashion, you know, thinking robots taking over the world, robots impersonating humans, that, you know, the classic movies, but it never really intersected with my field of study. I was a chemistry major in college and then went to medical school. So AI remained still this very, you know, Hollywoodized idea of mine. So it was always you know, that's kind of cool, but it's not really applicable to what I'm going to do on a daily basis. And then I have over here what also I love medicine, interacting with people, but also applying science. But I never really saw the two interacting. Then serendipitously, I had the opportunity to participate in an NIH-funded research year called the STAR program, which was in addition to my residency in internal medicine here at the Mayo Clinic. And I saw an opportunity to work with Dr. Paul Friedman in cardiology. He's the division chair currently, and he has a slew of research in artificial intelligence, particularly artificial intelligence applied to the electrocardiogram and other topics within cardiology. And I read a few of the papers and the studies that he'd done and I was automatically hooked. I didn't know this field really existed very much. I knew bits and pieces of AI can be used to potentially help radio radiologists interpret x-rays or AI can actually be used to help with pathology interpretation, but I didn't really think about it still. It was always this foreign concept to me. And then I realized, wow, this is being used in the field that I'm going into. What about it? Why not a better opportunity than to dive headfirst and see what this is all about. So really the rest is history. And now I've done three years of research with uh, Dr. Friedman and his group at large, which includes many other physicians and scientists. And it's been fascinating. So that's that's kind of where things came together. I would say, you know, I'm a preventive cardiologist uh, here at Mayo. And 
similar to David just found this out. So I also have, I majored in chemical engineering um, in undergrad. So um, I was also a, a chemistry minor. So I always had this kind of um, science, technology interest and background in implementing and integrating engineering concepts um, into not only my um, clinical practice, but also, of course, the, the research. So um, I am also a physician scientist and how I became interested in AI or even kind of um, introduced to AI is through better understanding of or recognition of the digital divide among underserved populations. So my research focuses on working with under-resourced and underserved populations. And it became very clear that this group was being left behind when it came to technological advances. And once we, when we met with community members um, in our community focus groups and listening sessions, you know, they were wondering about AI. What does that mean? What is our artificial intelligence and how does that influence my health? And I didn't, I wasn't totally equipped, but I, it piqued my interest to know more, um, to make sure that this group would also um, kind of ride this AI wave and not be left behind and create a wider, you know, gap or digital divide. So that's how I became interested in it, more so based on my interactions with community members that could be most affected by not receiving the benefits of AI and then finding a way that I can bridge that gap. You talked a little bit about the opportunity to reduce social inequalities and health disparities. So if you could say a little bit more about maybe how AI could get it wrong and also how you're intentionally using it to improve those gaps or reduce those gaps. I wanted to start, I guess, by defining the social determinants of health and how the digital determinants of health, if you will, are a part of that. So the social determinants of health are influences on health that are outside of general clinical care. So more of the environmental and social context that affects us all. So when those are negative or adverse, right, that can have negative consequences on health. So you can also have positive, you know, social determinants of health that then leads to positive outcomes and then advantage and disadvantage from those. So some of the negative and disadvantaged, um, you know, social determinants of health, you know, are limited access to quality health care, um, economic disempowerment. So not having access to employment or, you know, educational opportunities and also residing in disenfranchised neighborhoods that have limited resources. So then that leads to the digital determinants of health. So if you don't have access to broadband internet, um, you live in rural areas or even dense urban areas that just do not you know, have adequate or affordable um, internet access that can also lead to what we call the digital divide. And that refers to um, widening inequalities between disadvantaged persons that you know, really don't have access to digital technologies, whether it's, you know, computers, devices, internet access. And then there's an, also another term, if you take that one step further, um, called digital redlining. And that's also somewhat of a barrier to health innovation, if you will. Um, so it's a novel term, and it defines really intentional and 
like discriminatory policies by community technology providers in maintaining or upgrading infrastructure for delivery of broadband internet access. Um, it can also lead to you know, inequalities in AI. So I guess a particular example where AI can go wrong. Um, so this, was, this study was published in Science a couple of years ago by Obermeyer and colleagues. And essentially they developed an AI model to predict healthcare needs of certain populations with chronic conditions. So it was really a way to allocate resources to certain populations. And the algorithm predicted healthcare costs really as a proxy for healthcare needs. So if you spend a lot of money, then you needed, you needed more healthcare. But what they didn't realize is that their race-based disparities in healthcare delivery. So really the minoritized population, so racial ethnic minority groups, or you know, those that are disadvantaged had less spending, right? So if you're using healthcare costs and there's less spending, there's less outcomes, um, less, sorry, allocation of um, resources to these groups. Basically, they were saying that the racial and ethnic minority groups were healthier because there was less spending and actually that was the opposite. They had more of a burden of chronic disease, including cardiovascular disease. So that's where AI can go wrong. Um, when you are not informed on the social environmental context of healthcare delivery. Let me ask a quick follow-up to that. I've heard data scientists refer to proxies in this way. This sounds like a great example of those proxies where we're thinking about substituting one thing and assuming it means something else. Can you think of other examples that would illustrate a incorrect proxy, so to speak? I can give somewhat of another example that's not necessarily AI, but really related to digital health interventions and making assumptions about like where people live, um, which can be, you know, like a, a proxy for um, how much they will be engaged with a certain intervention. So we all remember the um, Pokemon Go app. So that was like really popular. We were really excited about you know, getting involved with that from both a public health and uh, medical standpoint, because it was getting our patients more active, our communities more active. But what the community actually found, so this is how the community is very attentive to these things. And this is why I want to bring them into the fold now, before we, you know, start to have disparities from AI. They noticed that, um, if you remember, there were pokey stops that everyone would, would try to get to. They noticed that many of the pokey stops were not in their neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods were primarily um, underserved, under-resourced, those that had high racial, ethnic minority groups, I'm sure some algorithm, right, put these together. That was a form of digital redlining where, you know, they just didn't have access to the Pokestop, so they couldn't be as involved. So I guess the, the proxy was, okay, you think that, you know, that the neighborhood, if you just have them in a certain cluster of neighborhoods, certainly people will go to this area. People didn't live in those areas and they didn't have access to get there or they weren't even welcomed in those areas. You may intentionally or inadvertently widen the digital divide or uh, introduce digital redlining. I think it really, it really just speaks to the fact that sometimes we have a very exciting tool, but until we see it in real practice and then see it, how it's impacting patient to patient, what what actually is happening to the situation? Are we actually alleviating 
you know, healthcare burdens are we creating new ones? And uh, I think Dr. Brewer really hit the nail on the head. You know, there's algorithms that work beyond what we may intentionally notice or beyond what we even intend when we're trying, you know, trying to get people out and active, but we're really not doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's, that also goes with a lot of the healthcare tools that we have that sometimes we say, well, we're creating easier ways to screen for complex cardiac diseases, but then are we going to create an accident an influx of people trying to get screening? Um, so I think it's always important to think of the implications when we create something or start employing something regularly, who is going to receive it, who may be marginalized, and then what the implications of that are. Thank you so much. So let's maybe take a a step back and talk more specifically about AI being used in cardiovascular medicine. Some of your work is focused on AI-enhanced ECGs. Can you explain how those work? Sure. So from a a 10,000-foot view, it's very, the details are, are, are pretty complex, and I'm personally not a computer scientist. So I actually work with a very large team of engineers, computer scientists, and clinicians. So Essentially, you know, you have the electrocardiogram, and the electrocardiogram in its most basic forms are electric electrodes that are attached to the body in different anatomical positions, and these electrodes can detect the electrical signals sent out by the heart during each heartbeat. So each time the heart beats, there's an electrical signal that conducts from the top of the heart to the bottom of the heart. And by using multiple different electrodes, multiple different anatomical sites, we're able to detect the direction of this electrical activity and we're also able to detect abnormalities in this electrical activity. This is a technology that's actually existed for over 100 years, which I think is fascinating that we're still using this technology that was created in the late 1800s. And uh, we are getting very adept at interpreting this. You know, we print out an, an ECG that has 12 leads and we hand it to any med student and say, you know, what do you see? And then you hand it to the resident and the senior resident and the fellow and everybody sees something maybe a little different, but over the course of time, everybody can learn what typical abnormalities look like, what problems look like and what we don't have to worry about. Now, artificial intelligence has taken this to another level. And what I mean by that is some algorithms, different clinicians, different scientists go through and select manually different points on the ECG, different points of this electronic signal and have a computer analyze it and say, does this or does this not mean something? Or can we or can we not detect a cardiac disease from these signals that we've selected? Our group is a little bit different in that we actually feed millions of ECGs to our algorithm, to our network, and say, can we detect this certain cardiac pathology? And we run these algorithms over and over again until we've trained it to be able to detect this cardiac pathology, and then take another set of ECGs that this computer has never seen and see how accurate it is. And sometimes we have to go back and forth to see how accurate we can get this output. But what we're essentially looking for is putting in this complex signal, this 12-lead complex electronic signal, and coming out with a simple answer, you know, percent chance of heart failure, biologic predicted age. You know, and it's it's been fascinating because we've actually watched our algorithms learn and grow in such a way that we're able to predict cardiac disease beyond what is actually visible. We have seen multiple examples and we have many clinical studies where the algorithm looks at a normal sinus rhythm ECG, one where everybody in the room would say, this ECG has no abnormalities. And the computer says, well, this patient actually has a 99% chance of heart failure. 
and the computer's correct. And we've seen that in different examples of different cardiac diseases. So we've opened a box that we're not entirely sure where to go with it next. We are running multiple studies to see how to effectively employ this new technology and employ these new findings. But at the same time, we're also trying to learn how is this computer interpreting this? Because while we have ways of estimating this and while we have ways of viewing it, that still is somewhat of an unknown, something that's a very big portion of research that we're doing currently. We've talked a little bit where AI can get it wrong. And that's also where we worry about, you know, what's, how are these decisions being made? What is the computer even looking at? Because it's obviously seeing something or not. There's plethora of diagnostic tools in your field. And you talked about in this case, the AI model is, is getting it right. And how are you confirming that? So on many of the studies that we've done, they're retrospective. So most of the studies, the, we know, we know the, the ground truth. We know that the patient has heart failure and we know what the clinician interpreted ECG was. We know how it was coded. So when we then run the computer, we see, does it agree with the clinician? Does it agree with the ground truth or is it incorrect? So that's how we typically know, but that's also the implication in the real world. When we start asking how accurate is it? Sometimes you don't know. And that's a little bit concerning when you're saying, oh, this person looks maybe healthy in front of me, but their AI ECG says they're not healthy. What do I believe? And we're doing our best to have enough research to answer that, particularly in the clinical context. And I think the, the important thing there, from my understanding, is I'm not sure how easily you can convince the general public that a machine is going to have better clinical decision-making skills than the doctor they've come to know and trust over a long time. Could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. There, were, there was a, a fascinating uh, manuscript that came out in uh, NPJ Digital Medicine that's actually from, from Mayo's Bioethics Group, and it addresses these exact questions. What are clinicians and what are patients' perceptions of artificial intelligence? And it's exactly what you'd expect. You know, you have quotes from patients, you know, who's who's then making the decision? You know, what, <laughs> what's going on with my care? And I think that's a, it's a valid question because clinicians are trying to learn how to use this, but you know, as a patient, sometimes hearing, oh, my clinician is learning how to use this new tool doesn't always make, uh, establish the best trust necessarily. Um, so I don't think we can do away with clinicians at large by, by any means. There is a lot to be said with clinical context. And a lot of these results can't be taken just in isolation. And we're actually working on how clinicians can best utilize these tools in the appropriate clinical setting especially when we don't think these results line up. So I think there's still a lot to be said that these new results, these new tools are not being taken in completely in isolation. I think there needs to be a lot of teaching and a lot of cautionary tales of what could be the harms of taking this in isolation. Even sometimes when the AI is seeing beyond what we can see, that doesn't always mean we need to pursue that pathway. But I think some real good can, can come out of it as well. And I think there's a, there's a lot of optimism around it too. I think patients will be reassured when they start seeing the successes of AI, when they start seeing people's lives being saved as a result of AI. But there always has to be some first steps. And I think those first steps will be the ones where we need to be the most cautious. And, you know, we can't just put it out there and say, let's see what happens. You know, these people's lives can be at stake sometimes when it comes to these big decisions. It's, it's a very good question. And it's a you get a variety of answers because some folks are very trusting of new technology. Some folks are slow adapters. 
there's no necessarily right or wrong in that. I would like to add trust in AI from uh, patients and community <laughs> members. And I see AI as more of a complement or adjunct, like a, a clinical tool. And also AI is a part of the care team, right? It takes you know, different pieces to make a decision that's um, patient-centered and best to answer the question and to um, treat the patient at hand, whether we're preventing disease. I see AI as more of something uh, in our toolbox to enhance care, not hinder it. I really appreciate that description, Dr. Brewer. Thank you. I want to take a step back for just a minute. Dr. Harmon, could you explain a little bit more about the training and test process in those data sets? So it's the train, training, validation, and testing sets. So you have the training set, which initially that's where you start saying, can the computer get it right and wrong? And can we teach the computer right and wrong? And then you have a validation set, which is kind of that trial run before we start saying, can we test this on ECGs that's never seen before? And then finally you go to the testing set and that's where you start seeing how how correct is this algorithm with respect to the ground truth that we know? So those are kind of the, the basic steps. And most derivation projects, you know, have the training, the validation, and a testing set. But then after that, when there's just a validation, usually it's just a testing set. So you already have validated this tool that you've created, and now you're trying to see in a different environment or in an environment with unfamiliar features or unknown confounders, does the test still work accurately? Thank you for that explanation. I would love for you to share a bit about your community participatory health work. Sure, yes, I have a love story actually with community-based participatory research and that it's truly shaped my entire research focus. Also, it complements my, my clinical practice and has really helped me to grow personally. And community-based participatory research really has the community at its center in that they are the focus of the research and they are involved in all processes or throughout the research process from coming up with the research question to um, designing the intervention to implementing the intervention in communities and then disseminating it back to the community for their benefits. And I must say that community-based participatory research is, or CBPR is what we fondly call it, is um, very rewarding in that there is a reciprocal relationship that you have with the community. It's bi-directional in that you're learning from them and they're also learning from you. So we're both ex experts and um, we're equal partners in advancing science. And CBPR is really a scientific approach that really requires authentic community engagement and partnerships. And it really, again, helps to shape your research agenda. So I am the principal investigator or founding director of a program called FAITH. And it's an acronym that stands for Fostering African-American Improvement in Total Health. And it's a cardiovascular health and wellness program in partnership with African-American churches. And we conduct both in-person uh, programming as well as uh, design of digital health interventions to promote heart health. And this year, we're celebrating 10 years of um, our founding here in Minnesota. 
And actually this weekend, we're holding 10-year uh, celebration events for our anniversary to celebrate how long our partnership has been in place and how you know, re we really endured a lot over 10 years, including a pandemic. But um, I must say how it relates to you know, digital health and addressing the digital divide is that we engage with our communities to understand what their priorities are to integrate into our scientific questions. And we then co-design our interventions with that social lens, if you will, to make them more culturally relevant to participants. So we developed an intervention called the Faith App, which is a smartphone um, app, which promotes heart health. And we had significant improvements in overall cardiovascular health and also health behaviors like diet and physical activity in our recently uh, completed randomized control trial, which was um, funded through the American Heart Association and the National Institutes of Health. So it really shows how community members are very innovative and creative, um, and they can really help bridge, if you will, this digital divide and to erase that digital redlining, if you will, as we seek to achieve digital health equity. So tell me a little bit more about this project and what you've learned from it, where, where you're excited to take it next. Initially, I met David. He was a rock star internal medicine resident while I was consulting or attending on our inpatient cardiology service. And he expressed to me that he was interested in cardiology. And of course, I was like, yay. Um, and I knew that he would be fantastic um, as one of hopefully our cardiology fellows. Um, and I've just, you know, really taken him under my wing and I've just had the wonderful opportunity to mentor him through the years and really proud that he was able to obtain NIH funding to take a year to advance his science, you know, within this space. And then I was really, really delighted when he um, was uh, accepted into our cardiology fellowship program. So I would have the opportunity to work with him again. So all the while, you know, we we recently finished, as I, as I mentioned earlier, our faith trial, and we performed, uh, received funding actually through the Mayo Clinic uh, Executive Office. Uh, our CEO, Dr. Gianrico Perugia, actually supported us in doing an ancillary study called Heart Health Plus, and it included additional cardiac measures, including um, EKGs. And we wrote in, you know, kind of, not a lot of detail, it's kind of vague, but you know, I knew that we wanted to bring in some artificial intelligence to our, our project. We said we do these ECGs with the intention of running them through our Mayo Clinic AI algorithm. I was working with David actually in our cardiology outpatient practice and cardiology, the preventive cardiology clinic. And um, we were seeing a patient together and I noticed that he was really um, attentive to the EKG AI algorithm. <laughs> I said, oh, what are you doing over there, David? And he was, you know, breaking it down for me. Also going through the different um, pictures and figures that were on. I said, you know what? I think you should assist us with our Faith Heart Health Plus study. We have ECGs, you know, on our African-American patients. And I think it would be wonderful and a really nice proof of concept study to see how community-based screening with ECGs and this AI algorithm to predict whether they have a low ejection fraction. And we can also report this back to our community. So he was very um, enthusiastic about it. Um, we thought that it was very novel and he even looked in the literature to see if anyone had done this before. And to our knowledge, we were the first to do this and you know, actually publish this. 
but I'll turn it over to him, you know, on, you know, kind of the details of our, our project. But essentially, we had patients come to an outpatient clinic that was into, in the center of their neighborhood in Minneapolis and Rochester, and they got these ECGs. And then we ran them through the Mayo Clinic AI algorithm to predict their um, ejection fraction. I was very excited when this opportunity, there's, there's no understatement there. I get excited about most things, but this was a very exciting opportunity. And I realized, you know, she had collected these ECGs and all of them were in the Mayo system. Even some of these patients who hadn't been evaluated by Mayo Clinic practitioners formally, they all had Mayo Clinic medical record numbers and all had ECGs. And the beauty of the widely applied artificial intelligence algorithm that we're using at Mayo or the separate algorithm that we're using at Mayo for the ECGs, every 12 lead ECG at the Mayo Clinic is processed through this. So every patient who gets a 12 lead ECG at Mayo gets this these different AI scores for different cardiovascular pathology, as well as ECG predicted sex and ECD predicted age. And what I, my discussion with Dr. Brewer was there's a few ways this can be used in preventative health. She mentioned using the AI ECG for screening of heart failure. And this had been somewhat done in the community. Uh, Xiao Shi uh, Yao and Dr. Uh, Peter Noseworthy in the Department of Cardiovascular Disease had done a community-based study. So not a community-based participatory research-based study like Dr. Brewer, but a study in the community sending out notifications to primary care physicians saying, check the AI ECG score on your patients for heart failure. And if it's high, consider ordering an echocardiogram, particularly if you feel this patient fits the clinical you know, pathway for this. And we actually saw an increased early diagnosis of heart failure in that, in that group in a controlled study. And I thought that would be incredible to do with Dr. Brewer's group, even though it was a smaller cohort. I thought that would be really interesting to apply it to particularly a minority group, because that is one big field that I've been researching more more recently with the with the artificial intelligence group, is the application of these AI uh, tools in underrepresented groups, because these tools were not trained or derived on underrepresented minorities. They're, they're derived on whatever the population is in the area that you derived it. So Southeast Minnesota is about 93 to 95% uh, white. And this uh, really presented an opportunity to validate this algorithm in a group that doesn't get this kind of attention. As we mentioned, the digital divide before, a lot of these AI projects, I mean, widely across the United States, a lot of these AI projects, a lot of these digital health projects are marketed toward uh, white white folks. And so this is, this is a huge opportunity for us to show not only can we use AI in a community-based fashion, but we can also validate our algorithm in this predominantly minority group. And uh, the other interesting part of this with respect to preventive medicine was the AI ECG for age and for sex. The original study looking at AI ECG predicted age is that not only the was the AI ECG predicted age very accurate, but for patients that it was inaccurate or kind of like a false negative or false or false uh, positive, if you will, in the patients who had an AI ECG predicted age that was greater than their own chronologic age, greater than seven years difference between the two, those 
patients actually had a higher incidence of hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And then patients with, you know, seven years lower, we saw the opposite, you know, they were at lower risk. And so I was thinking about this, if we see in this group that AI ECG predicted age is accurate, we could potentially track these patients long-term, they're more or less physiologic aging by AI ECG to see how they are keeping in with their heart health or are they putting themselves at more risk? Do we need to be more attentive to some folks compared to others based on these AI scores? So what Dr. Brewer presented us with was a really exciting proof of concept that we could apply this AI ECG in this minority community for prevention. You know, it is kind of a perfect puzzle falling together. So it was really exciting opportunity to, to give this a try. And it really had great results. We saw that the AI ECG was accurate in all three with respect to predicted age, predicted sex and heart failure prediction. It was a small cohort. So there were very few folks with true disease. We only had a few heart failure patients. We didn't see very large derivations in the AI ECG age matching up with patients' comorbidities, but this was, as we mentioned, an initial proof of concept. We first need to show that this can even work accurately. Can we even predict one thing or not predict another thing rather than saying, oh, what is the secondary prediction off of what we know to be accurate? You know, we have to first say, can we even do this? And so I think we really had a good case that we that we are able to do this in a really interesting way. And I, I wanted to add also, presenting these results to the community was also really fun. And my community member, primary community partner called it, he said the light bulb went off. And I said, what does that mean? He said, no one really knew what you meant about getting these EKGs and the echocardiograms or heart ultrasounds until you presented it in the way of we're using this algorithm to predict whether you have heart disease or not. And this could actually save you money or help save your life by predicting it earlier, or even just from a healthcare cost standpoint, preventing you from having to get this full echocardiogram. Um, you know, these people are, you know, they, they may have limited resources and time, we all do, to actually get a full echocardiogram. So just getting this 10-second ECG could help to predict whether you have heart disease or as David mentioned, you know, your heart age, if you will, your, you know, how, how you are from a wellness standpoint. So our participants were really excited about these results and the potential that artificial intelligence could improve their health outcomes in the long, long run. And they were wondering why their doctors hadn't mentioned this to them before. You know, why don't we have this at my primary care clinic? And, you know, and many of them said, can I take this to my primary care doctor to show them? So I, I think it's very promising. And I hope that we're able to do this in a larger trial and, you know, with our future studies to always integrate this AI ECG to predict uh, heart disease. You know, that was going to be my next question. Why doesn't my primary care doctor have this? You know, we know that new technologies for a variety of reasons aren't going to be as quickly adopted in, in medicine as they might be at a social media company for very good reasons. I was just going to say, so it really brings home the point that we need evidence-based studies like this with diverse populations because clearly it can have a positive impact. But if we 
fail to have more diverse cohorts, and as uh, David mentioned, really derive these algorithms from diverse populations or within their social context, we then will see, you know, some digital health inequities from AI. So I really hope that we can keep this momentum going to always keep this social lens, if you will, um, social context when we're developing these AI algorithms. And I think the the cool thing about this, as you all have mentioned and described so clearly, there's so much potential for cost savings and like immediate cost savings of not having to do echocardiograms and more intensive workups. And then the long-term savings for the individual and the healthcare systems by being able to catch things early before they become a very expensive and very scary kind of health prognosis. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is just one example, you know, as far as heart disease. I mean, there are other, you know, disease processes that, you know, this can be applied to from a preventive standpoint. There's been even a wider application of these algorithms beyond just the 12 lead ECG, because there are many portable ECG devices, the Apple Watch, for instance, and the Cardia Mobile device, which you can actually purchase over the counter at most drugstores. We've actually started applying algorithms to this and actually had a, a fairly large uh, paper in Nature Medicine not that long ago showing that we could actually apply the artificial intelligence ECG algorithm to the single lead Apple Watch ECG and detect heart failure with fair accuracy. So this opens up another world of who who can use this even in the general population also with the cautionary tale of well you're going to have to warn primary care folks and even specialists you're going to have a patient come in and say well my watch says i have this problem so there's a it's a double-edged sword but it's also it's very exciting and i guess to bring that home that point home from like an equity lens like just making sure that everyone has access to these devices right so the apple watch the cardia that you mentioned this is why I felt compelled to be in this space because I want to be at the table when we're, you know, making these decisions about who. Okay, now we have this, you know, new um, device that we're going to deploy out, you know, to um, whether it's in the community or in a clinical setting. We need to make sure that everyone has access to these really life-saving tools. This is really really cool. Okay, so in the interest of time, <laughs> I typically end these by asking a couple of big wonderings, but for today, maybe just one big wondering. You talked about AI being a tool in a toolkit. What is one problem in your world, professional, personal, silly, that you could have a tool to solve? What would that be? That's a very good question. <laughs> I think, and I'm sure some version of this may potentially exist, but some type of algorithm, you know, I, I don't know what it would use, whether it would be ECGs or machine learning over patients, you know, chart review using uh, electronic medical records or laboratory results, but some algorithm that is able to direct the most type of cost efficient patient care. Because I think right now, you know, we're, we're good diagnosticians. I think that's the one thing. It's a, you know, we ask what is the biggest problem in medicine? It's not diagnosing things. We're getting real, we're getting very good at that. The astronomical cost of healthcare, as as Dr. Brewer has mentioned, access to equitable healthcare is a huge problem. And if there was an algorithm that could somehow tell 
clinicians, including myself, not this is not excluding me by any means, but you know, do or do not order this test. Or if you order this test and this is the result, then you're going to be committed to ordering this or this expensive test. And is this really not, you know, if there was some type of algorithm that could say, this is the most efficient pathway of care for the cost, but also for the patient benefit, that would be incredible. I don't know what that is. And I don't think it's going to be necessarily a single tool. But I'm hoping AI might be an answer to some of that. And I'll take a more, I guess, a very idealistic, I guess, want or desire, dream, if you will. There's some sort of, you know, AI algorithm, you know, that can really eliminate all bias and racism in healthcare. You know, whether is there there's some alert or, you know, really something that would really be a metric of racism and bias to really eliminate that, to really advance health equity so that we won't even have to have conversations surrounding disparities and um, inequities in healthcare for certain populations. Uh, we're all here, and this is one reason we went into this profession, right, to serve everyone. Um, and to be of service in improving their health. So I really hope that we can use this for good, the greater good of society. Thank you so much for that. And I so appreciate the work that both of you are doing. And I so appreciate this conversation. I've learned so much from both of you today. Thank you so much for having us. This has been great. And I really appreciate your desire to want to learn more about not only artificial intelligence, but also community-engaged research and uh, health equity. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This has been wonderful.